Welcome to the latest edition of the Cal Podcast with me, Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Today's guest is Commander of United Kingdom Strategic Command, General Sir Jim Hockenhull. General Hockenhull commissioned into the Intelligence Corps in 1986 and has extensive operational experience across the globe. His staff appointments include tours in the Ministry of Defence and at the United States Command and General Staff College. He has extensive experience working in and with multinational forces. He was Chief of Campaign Plans in Headquarters Multinational Force Iraq and also Chief Plans at Headquarters ARC and subsequently deployed to Afghanistan. Promoting to Brigadier in early 2009, he assumed the appointment of Director ISTAR at Army Headquarters and in September 2011 he returned to the Ministry of Defence as Head of Military Strategic Planning. In June 2013, he was promoted to Major General and deployed to Kabul as Director of the Ministry of Defence Advisory Group before taking up his post as Director of Cyber Intelligence and Information Integration in March 2015. In December 2018, General Jim assumed the appointment of Chief of Defence Intelligence on promotion of Lieutenant General. And in 2022, General Hockenhall was appointed Commander Strategic Commander. General? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for giving your time to, to come and talk to us. No, you're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. What's always good to start is to find out a little bit about what leadership means to you as a senior army officer. Leadership to me is about being calm and it's about being able to bring the very best out of the widest group of people. When I say calm, that's not just calm in leaders remaining calm, but I think it's also about a calm approach. And I think there's a, an element of, of our leadership, perhaps when we're, we're trained as young officers in certain facets and styles of leadership, which is you grow through your career in the same way that we mature our intellectual approach. Uh, we may well mature our approach to the profession of arms. And I think you also mature your approach to leadership. Uh, and I think it's an area where you have to keep learning. You have to keep learning about yourself as well as about the sort of practice of leadership. Mm. It, it leads us neatly on to an inevitable question, which is often asked about whether leaders are born or made or whether they're in its nature or nurture. But perhaps you could expand a little bit on what you said and maybe tell us about how you might have evolved as a leader, given that, that, that concept of growing. I, I mean, I think I have changed significantly. Of course, you know, to the extent that you actually know yourself and whether this would be matched by those that have known me over the course of my career, quite possibly the most insightful comments may well come from my wife over whether I've really matured and grown or not. In the early part of my career, I think I was energetic, I was driven, but I was quite narrow in my approach. And it was very much a sort of mission-focused, outcome-based leadership. It was around driving towards achieving objectives and believing that success was the end in itself, whilst also believing that success would actually generate a sort of a good culture amongst all of the personnel that were working with me. And I think as your responsibilities become wider, as you become older, and one would hope a little wiser, I think that kind of broadens your perspective and there's a depth that comes to that perspective, which I think changes your views around leadership. And whilst achieving success on outcomes remains important, there are a range of other factors, I think, which you know, need to be attended to in a slightly different way. I think there's an inevitability as, 
as a young person, there ought to be a degree of impetuousness about you because that's how you develop, that's how you drive outcomes at that age. It would feel slightly incongruous for someone to be, whilst in a, a leadership serial at Sandhurst, to be thinking about the depth of perspective and, and talking about um, systems leadership and how complicated leadership might be that probably wouldn't be scoring too highly with the company sergeant major perhaps at the time. But I do think there are ages that you go through in a military career and hopefully the military give you time to spend a bit of time reflecting and some of those long courses that we send people on which are ostensibly around defense education actually are, are moments in time where there are opportunities to reflect on your leadership style and to understand that whilst you will have a, a certain set of behaviors that are kind of more inherent in your personality it also needs to be contextually based. Mm. You can't just have one song that you play and imagine that that's going to be suitable for all time. Mm. And I think there there is an element of adjusting to context, which is really important. And as a younger man, I'm pretty sure that I had a particular mode of operating and then try and make the circumstances fit to that mode of operation. And I think I probably learned a little bit later that that might not be always as effective as I perhaps hoped it would be. There's a, there's a huge amount in there that we're definitely going to unpack from success and failure to how one evolves one's perspective as one matures. But perhaps we can, we can sort of start unpacking that by thinking about maybe the challenges that you experienced as a young officer and maybe identifying waypoints that have got you to where you are now in terms of the evolution of your leadership style. So I spent the first part of my career feeling a little bit as though I was a bit of an outsider, uh, which sounds odd for someone who's been through a kind of military career and now become what I term the, the accidental four-star um, in that I never expected, nor indeed really tried to seek that. And certainly when I was in the early part of my career, I didn't even know what a four-star was. I didn't even know the different flavors of generals. I had never met a general. And I kind of fell into the army a little bit, I don't know, not necessarily by mistake, but as a sort of, as an interested observer. And so feeling slightly as an outsider, and perhaps in many ways lacking a bit of confidence as I joined the army. And then I made the decision at that stage to seek a career in the intelligence corps, which at the time was, was seen as a small organization and a bit of a backwater. And of course, by joining the intelligence group, it changed the nature of the leadership responsibilities that I had. Mm. So while I spent my first year of my service after Sandhurst as a uh, an infantry platoon commander, which was an experience uh, with the then King's Own Royal Border Regiment, and I learned a lot from that year of the infantry. But then quickly, I was back to intelligence corps roles where yeah, it was handfuls of, of individuals, but those individuals were very, very different to the sorts of individuals that I had a brief time commanding in the infantry, and they required a different type mm. of leadership. They needed leading when there are a group of highly intelligent individuals who are motivated around exploring and learning and thinking. And of course, what that means, I think, is that you're shaped by your own personality. You're shaped by the system that we come through and the kind of the leadership training that we do at Sandhurst. But then, of course, you're also then shaped by the context within which you work. Mm. And I think that meant that early on, I found that I enjoyed small team leadership, working with 
people who were highly motivated, with people who were intellectually curious. And leading them was as much about leading them through the work that they were doing as it was about leading them as a, as a sort of group of individuals. And, and I found those challenges really interesting. And in some ways, they probably served me quite well as I've grown and developed over the course of my career. Mm. Different dynamics to how one has to deal with large groups of people doing a very specific job to a broader group of people from different backgrounds, perhaps, which takes us, of course, to where you are now. Um, our audience is quite large, military and non-military. Perhaps you could give a very quick overview as to the, the role of Stratcom and, and how that actually fits to what you're talking about in terms of the breadth of coverage you've got in terms of who you lead. Yes, yeah, certainly. So strategic command. The, the short answer, I think, is we're responsible for defence's kind of joint capabilities. Uh, I'll try and unpack that and give a, a bit more insight. In total, it's about 27,000 people of personnel from all three services. Uh, a third of our personnel are civil servants. There are a number of contractors. There's a lot of reserves in our organisation. We have a diverse group of organisations so they range from the Defence Medical Services through to Special Forces, the Permanent Joint Headquarters, Defence Intelligence, the Defence Academy and Joint Force Development, uh, Defence Logistics and Support, the cyber domain, including both defensive and offensive cyber in the National Cyber Force, and a range of other joint capabilities. They have their own particular outputs they're responsible for reducing. But also, uh, my function is to generate the sort of power of combinations of how do we get those separate bits of strategic command working in harmony together, and how do we make sure they work in harmony with the Army, Navy, Air Force, mm. with partners across government, with international partners as well. So it's a big series of networks mm. that we're seeking to exploit. And a lot of the time, we're providing an enabling and supporting function and sometimes we're in the lead, but mostly we're there to help others deliver on their objectives. In fact, for strategic command, almost everything that we do is for other people. Mm. That's really appealing to me. I'm an individual that's kind of quite happy not necessarily being um, always in the in the limelight and in the in the kind of front of the picture. And I can enable quite a lot of that effort, whether it be through logistics, whether it be through intelligence or information or communication support. So those cross-cutting functions mm. that run all the way across defense. And one of the key lessons, I think, coming out of Ukraine is a, a lesson which we've learned before, we've seen before, is that the more integrated you are in terms of your ability to operate across multiple domains, then the greater the advantage you may have over um, your adversary. I hope that gives a, a little bit of an insight into kind of my approach, which is my aspirations and my thoughts about my own military career never really saw me being given the opportunity that mm. I've got. What I now want to do is I want to take full, full advantage of that opportunity, but it's on behalf of all of defence. I, I think the, the simple span of command is naturally vast, but you, you touched on a couple of points that in terms of pure leadership function, are quite complex, actually. You, know, you, you said, you know, rightly, that you've got representatives from the single services, um, civilian workforce contractors are reservists, and, of course, your own experience of dealing with, or rather working in, and, and indeed leading, multinational headquarters 
how does one balance the blend of cultures that comes with those various different organisations on perspectives on what they're being asked to do? And, and where does the complexity come in unpacking that or unpicking it that maybe some of us who haven't yet done that could learn from in terms of how you lead different groups of perhaps at times disparate groups of people? So I think you have to start by wanting to understand people. Mm. It kind of helps, I suppose, my, my background as an intelligence officer helps me in that understanding is at the heart of what my career has been about. There's also something about being really inquisitive about people and about how how people work. And some of my, my roles have been kind of closely connected with understanding people. But what you need to recognize, I think, is that through that understanding, you can seek to identify what motivates people. And they may be, by group, it may be down to, in some teams, it may be down to the kind of individual level mm-hmm. of understanding those motivations. And then trying to build strengths out of what you can find in sort of common ground. What I don't do is I don't insist that everyone wears a strategic command lanyard. I don't insist that people have a strategic command on every bit of paper that's issued from the command. Because I recognize identity is really complex and people will identify as being from the army or the Navy or the Royal Air Force or the civil service before they necessarily identify as being in strategic command. And even if you're working in defense intelligence or in defense digital, you may identify as being from your service first and then you're in defense intelligence. And being in strategic command might be a tertiary identity. It may be, it may be even kind of lower down the chart. Yeah. But what I think I try and do is to say, well, let's pull people's strengths together. Let's try and identify what what unifies us rather than what divides us. And it's very easy, I think, in in the tribal nature sometimes of bits of defense to kind of identify what divides us. And you have kind of in-groups and out-groups. I'm really keen to make sure that our group is as broad as it can be. And what I try and encourage people to do within those groups is to focus on collaboration. And I think it's often an undervalued skill Mm. about how people collaborate. Because if you can collaborate and you have the potential to work with others, I think that's absolutely vital element of moving up the rank structure. Because if you can't collaborate, if your first instinct is not to think, how can I work well with others? Mm. Then as you move up to higher levels of, of leadership position, I think you will fail. And so I, I try to focus not on what divides us, but actually what pulls us together. Often what pulls you together is the mission and the outcome. And you become kind of mission focus rather than tribally kind of identity organizationally focus. I have a, a saying that I use, which I'm sure I've stolen from someone. And I, I say it too often inside my own command, but, but what I say to people is I, I really like it if we can gang up on the problem and not each other. And if we can achieve that, then mm. actually we've got a reasonable chance of actually dealing with that problem uh, and achieving the outcome that we want. It's a very compelling perspective. And, and of course, there are people who, are, who will be listening who are not in the military, who are working in their own organisations, sports teams and others, where, where identity is so critical. And really interesting to hear you being very encouraging, accepting the fact that one's perhaps Army, Navy or Air Force identity or, or civilian civil service can come first. And it'd be interesting to see how, how do you engender that feeling of team when people's perspectives might be individual identity. Rommel always said, we and us, never I. 
How do, how do you inculcate that across the, the command? Or, or indeed, across, how do we do it across the fence? So I, I think there's something about making sure we, we act with the kind of level of basic humanity. I try and make sure that what we do is run a really inclusive organisation. We talk a lot about maximising the talents of all of our people, regardless of where they're from. And, and often I find that we can unleash talents of individuals, which sometimes may previously have been constrained even by their, their own frame of reference. It's almost sometimes it feels like you take the blinkers off someone who's very, very committed within a particular structure. Mm. And what I want to be able to do sometimes is kind of remove those blinkers so that they can broaden their perspective. And then they become even better. Mm. Now, of course, there may be times when putting those blinkers back on is exactly the right thing to do. What I'm not saying is that the way in which we try and do things in strategic model, that's, that's the only way, because there are loads of different ways that mm. people can be led. But I've tried to find something that works for us. And I need to recognize that many of the people that work in my organization will be transient. They'll come to work in strategic command for two, three, four, five years, and then they'll return back to their own service. Mm. And I need to make sure that I've added value to them. But I hope when they, when they leave strategic command and go back to their own service, that I've helped them improve. Uh, if I've done that, then I've also added value back to the Army, Navy, or Air Force because they're getting someone who hopefully their perspective has been broadened a bit. They've had a slightly different way of working. And that's not to say that's the way they're going to work when they go back, but having experienced something different, it perhaps has enabled them to grow as an individual yeah. and then will add value back to their own institution. And I know there'll be people who are really encouraged to hear that. And we, we naturally work in a correctly and rightly a hierarchical organisation where there are times when we, we are in the military and we have to do what we're told and we have to follow a set of processes but allowing people to take the blinkers off and, and maximize their talent I think will chime with so many people how do we balance that against perhaps slightly more narrow views of one has to do certain jobs to get to certain positions which can sometimes perhaps be a little limiting on people's talent yeah I mean I, I think we've got quite a challenge over talent management mm. and I think our approach to how we manage our people uh, and exploit their talents I think we're going to have to recognise that, that some of those things are likely to evolve and maybe there may need to be some not insignificant changes. We recently had the um, laying before Parliament of the Hathorn Thwaite Review, which is looking at a set of interventions. May well be that we will see increased zigzag careers and lateral entry and things will be, I think, I, I think a little freer. I hope what that does, it gives people greater control themselves over their careers. And I'm a big believer that we, we need to recognize that in the past, anyone that's joined our organization, we have demanded that they change to fit our organization. Mm. And we put them through the training, we inculcate an ethos, we in many ways condition their behavior. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable, cohering and very effective way of working for the sorts of challenges we've faced in the past. And I'm not saying we need to throw that away, but I do think we're going to have to recognize that we as an institution may have to adapt to the sort of people that are going to be joining our organization rather than necessarily expecting all of them to change fundamentally to the way in which we're organized. Mm. I think it's also probably true, and I believe this to be true, people are going to join the military for shorter periods of time and the idea of very long careers, and I say this as someone who's 
had a very long career. But I, I think they will become less frequent. And I think it likely that we'll have people for shorter periods of time, maybe a slightly more flexible model of how we manage our people, I think we'll have some significant changes to the organization. That also changes the leadership challenge as well, I think. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's about harnessing talented people and kind of unleashing all of their potential. And if we can get a broad group of individuals and we can truly unleash their talent, then I think almost anything is possible. I think the greatest strength of UK defence, our greatest strength is our people. Mm. And they are remarkable. Almost sometimes in spite of the way in which we are organised, slightly at times in spite of the way in which our processes work, slightly sometimes in uh, almost in spite of the capabilities that we provide them with, our people are unbelievably good. If we could fix the way in which we manage and enable and unleash the potential, we just imagine what we could achieve. Yeah. And so I'm kind of, I'm optimistic because I think we can and should fix those things. I think we can increase our impact and our output, not necessarily by having to seek enormous numbers of more people. Actually, I think we do quite a lot with the resource that we've got. And that's not saying that we are right-sized or wrong-sized, but the potential of our people, I think, is almost, it's not limitless, but there's an enormous amount more that we can do, I think. Mm. I think there is a very compelling argument there about changing the organisation to meet the changing people that are coming in over the generations. There will be a body of people who are out there listening who are thinking, well, our organisation is our organisation and it has a central purpose to defend the nation. Where's the limit of what we change to accommodate generations coming in, but to ensure that we can still fulfil our primary function? It's a, it's a justifiable concern, but I... I'm always slightly worried in debate where you can say a thing and people immediately kind of rush to the extreme end of the thing that you've said. Not, I'm suggesting that's what you've done. But so what I'm not saying is kind of throw away everything around the existing model and let's change everything. There are some fundamental truths about the power of what we do. There are also parts of the individual services, and in this case, parts of the army that that need certain things to be organized and run in particular ways because of the demands and questions we're going to ask of them. My argument would be, though, we shouldn't try and impose those things on other bits of the army or defense where it would be inappropriate to do so. So I think we need to be much more flexible rather than a kind of a one-size-fits-all. I think we're going to have to recognize that particularly in some areas we're in kind of deep skill deficits at the moment, we're going to need to change to be able to attract and retain for a period of time the sorts of people that we need. And that's particularly true in digital and cyber, but it's true in other areas across defence as well. There's definitely two, two, if not a myriad of questions that fall out of. So first one is, how are we going to balance the necessity to invest in technology that is advancing faster and faster with the need to recruit, retain and continue to invest in our people when sometimes trying to get the quite literally the balance sheet right is so difficult. So I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges for defence going forward. Mm. It, it's easy to see a set of requirements that require us to spirally develop capability and invest in high-end technology in order to be able to prevail in conflict. That is, I believe, true. But if we don't invest in our people, 
then it's difficult to see how we retain the workforce that we need, how we have the skills that we need, and how we remain the first division military if we can't exploit the talents of our people. And that's where some of the things that we, we know we must address, down to the infrastructure, we're not giving people the level of support that they require. Now, there are lots of efforts being made to address some of that, but there's inevitably a tension between kind of investing in those new capabilities and making sure we've got the right investment in our people. And, and I think there's a need for us to make sure we're having a really honest debate about our balance of investment and understanding the kind of clear connectivity between giving our people what they deserve mm. and seeing that as an essential element of military capability. And if we don't draw that clear line, often people will say, you know, well, actually, there's a capability argument, which is about kit and equipment and, and training. But if we're sensible and we do what we say we should do when we think of capability and key elements of capability, when you look at the defense lines of development is mm -hmm. infrastructure. But often that infrastructure is that which is tied to a particular bit of capability. We need to think about our people as a capability and all those things that are required to support them as well. There are never to be difficult questions because it would be a remarkable military anywhere in the world to have the resource to be able to do everything you would want to do to support your people and everything you would like to do in capability. There are always balance of investment decisions and things are often having to be sequenced rather than always delivered at the moment that you'd like it. We, we need to do two things simultaneously, or at least in, in rapid sequence. And that's, we zoom in to look at a particular problem, but then we need to be able to zoom out to look at the context. And often we make decisions based upon kind of zooming in on a particular problem set. And we look at those factors in lots of detail and then we decide what we're going to do. But you need to make sure that you're zooming out to say, does that decision that I'm going to take, does that make sense mm. in the broader context? And often when you're making a decision about investing in X capability, the opportunity cost is that you no longer have that resource to invest in other things. Yeah. So therefore, you need to be doubly sure that not only are we doing things right, we need to ask the question of, are we doing the right things? Mm. And, and you need to have that kind of duality of discussion. But we also need to recognize the value which comes through in kind of investing in our people. And if we don't, then you start to undermine the kind of the broader capabilities, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that actually your capability, mm. which is based upon our people, um, is undermined. Mm. Uh, how do you think, going back to this piece about cyber, how do you think the exponential increase in technological capability that we are seeing around us is impacting on leadership? And how do you think we can adapt better to that? You know, it was not that long ago that one would be given a set of orders and just allowed to get on with it. Now we see deep reach into what was once mission command. How can we make that better? So I, I think there are a couple of thoughts. So the first is, I think leaders across all of defense at all levels need to get better at understanding technology. Mm. It's not of what it can bring. Of, of what it yeah. can bring and what it can do. But, all, but it's not good enough to sit there and say, well, I'm a Luddite, I don't really understand this. If people say that about technology, then they either need to go and educate themselves or they should probably go and do a different job. Because I just don't think it's acceptable to say, I don't understand technology. That's very difficult 
for individuals to necessarily stay up to date on the latest developments in quantum computing. But it is important that people are inquisitive. If you're a leader, you need to be inquisitive. You need to always be learning. And I think understanding technology is is so important. And then you need to recognize that actually the world is changing. I mean, many of us led teams, particularly during COVID, where teams were fundamentally dispersed. And, you know, there are individuals in various parts of defense who won't have been with their work colleagues for months at a time. Mm. But you're still responsible for leading those individuals. So you need to find ways of, of engaging. You need to find ways of working with people in a different way. And therefore, if you're if your leadership style is slightly sort of one trick and the answer is, you know, that the way in which I do it is I stand on the bonnet of my vehicle and I gather everyone around and I, I give them a good pet talk. Well, that may be ideal in certain circumstances, but you need to find other ways mm. um, of engaging. And I think what technology does is it makes it often easier to reach people. You need to work really hard to engage with people. Mm. I can now do an all-staff dial-in in Strategic Command and have sometimes thousands of people that will join that call. But I, I don't then think, well, that's uh, I've now reached out, I've communicated my message to the organization. There's still then a lot of effort to make sure you're truly engaging because part of it is as much about listening as it is about talking, which seems odd in a, a podcast where all I've done is talk. But, but there's something about, as a leader, being willing to listen, willing mm. to learn willing to develop, willing to challenge yourself, willing to to not always believe that just because you think of something that it's right and being open to, to a bit of self-analysis, getting good feedback, making sure you're getting kind of good 360 degree reporting and that kind of realization of who you are and how you're viewed and how much impact and effect you're having on the organization. All of that becomes really important. And I think as you deal with people through different technology modes, you need to adjust sometimes your leadership style in order to be able to do so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Remaining agile, I think, is something that's a definite theme that transcended everything that we've looked at in the, in the center of leadership. You, you talked earlier on about um, identity. There's, there's, a, there's obviously a bleak reference to empathy. You take, as so many of us do, defense's core values and standards very seriously, and, and widely so. And of inclusion through Stratcom and single service variations are really important about how we make a more inclusive and diverse organization function better. How do you think we're going to measure the success of our renewed or refocused efforts to try and bring culture to the heart of some of our more intractable problems that we have to deal with? So I think sometimes measuring measuring these things which are slightly permeable or, or indistinct is always hard. Uh, sometimes it almost comes down to a feel question. I, I'm not sure this is, I'm not sure this is spoken about very often in defense, but what I'd like in strategic command is I'd, I'd like my people to be happy. I'd like them to, to enjoy what they do. I'd like them to feel that they're part of, a, of an engaged, committed team that's doing vital work. And if I can get feedback, which gives me an indication that people are happy in what they're doing, then to me, there's every chance that we'll be achieving our mission set and we'll be able to kind of do all that we can do. But I also think that the idea of, uh, as we run um, Op Inclusion, which is the strategic command approach, and we link that to Op Teamwork, so that Army personnel in strategic command aren't asked to do both things. 
So we try and make sure that we're integrated with wider defense rather than just doing our own thing. But to me, our values of being inclusive, progressive and innovative are really, really important. Mm. And we try and live those values. Um, so we try and check ourselves and say, you know, when we're doing things, are we, are we being inclusive in how we're doing this? Are we being innovative? Are we being progressive? And I think the more you refer back to the values that you hold dear and you try and live those values, I think is, is really important. How do you balance, and we, we, this is a question that we've often asked in various different permutations, how do we balance those core values and standards that we seek to uphold against a foe who may have no values and standards, who has no concept of right and wrong, who for them winning is the only end state? So I'll, I'll, I'll try not to question, but I, the, the asymmetry that's in your question mm. is is something that kind of occupies quite a lot of my time. So um, when we think about operations in the cyber domain, the fact that our adversaries don't adhere to any form of international rule of law or mm-hmm. any humane activity is something which is deeply concerning. And we, of course, have to operate within a very, very different set of rules and guidelines, and that's true in all domains of operations. Uh, I think the answer to me is that our greatest strength against our adversaries are our partnerships and our friendships. And I don't think you have many partners or friends if you kind of descend to the bottom, break every rule and break every law. Mm. And the strength that we have as partners across defense, uh, partners across government, and perhaps crucially importantly, international partners, that gives us a decisive edge over our adversaries. Mm. So if we look at Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, which you know, has, as Russia has executed, thinking that they would have a swift and decisive victory, and they have failed for a whole variety of different reasons, some of which are their own failings, their own incompetence, crucially because of the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian people, but also because of the unity of the international community in supporting Ukraine to fight back. And therefore, what we lose, perhaps as a consequence in that asymmetry, because others have a greater freedom of action because they're not constrained by the rule of law or other considerations, by retaining a morally defensible position, Mm. I think that enables you to gain partners and friends. And as a consequence of that partnership and friendship, that gives us greater strength. You lose in that asymmetry in one sense, but it gives you the facility to have allies and partners. And the, the very fact that during the, the sort of the Cold War, the strength and unity of the Western position was so fundamental to success through the Cold War. And I think as, as I look forward now, there may be adversaries, current and potential, who would not adhere to the rule of law. But the fact that we can sustain strong international partners with like-minded nations that have the same adherence to defending human rights and the rule of law gives us a, an asymmetric advantage over those adversaries, but in a different way. Gaining advantage is critical, isn't it? Perhaps I could go into some maybe a little more of a personal probe and ask, you know, we, we talk a lot about learning from failure. What might you have learned from your greatest failure? Uh, so... I hesitate only because I'm trying to do the gradation between my many failures and work out which was my greatest. 
And I was thinking of my, my latest failure, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure was probably earlier this week. Um, so I, I think back probably to a time when I was a relatively young officer. Uh, and this may not have been my greatest failure, but it had quite a great impact on me that I was driven around a particular mission. And that, that focus on the mission meant that I absolutely ignored a whole load of other challenges. And I was at risk of kind of fracturing the team and potentially breaking some of my people as we were trying to execute that mission. And we were successful in the sense that we achieved the objective. And then when I looked at the, at the impact that I had personally had on those individuals, I was fairly shocked and appalled. I'd been so outcome focused that I'd failed to take into account the kind of the broader team. And that failure on my part has driven quite a lot of, of my thinking in subsequent leadership roles. And I'm absolutely sure that I would have made that mistake on a number of occasions because uh, it, it's rare, I think, where someone has a failure, learns something and immediately puts that into place and changes their character mm. um, and is able from that moment forward to immediately change their approach mm. and never make that mistake again. There'll be times, I'm sure, where there will be echoes of that of that mistake. And I think as I grew up over time, but perhaps by the time I was commanding at sort of unit level, I'd probably made variations of that mistake on a number of occasions. And they never quite as egregiously, I think, as the first time. And by the time I got to unit level, I think I had learned enough to recognize that there were some different ways to achieve outcomes, but there were also a whole range of of really important factors which are which are fundamental to mission success and just achieving mission success and leaving everything behind that mission as a sort of scorched earth policy in achieving that mission success of course means that you haven't really achieved no. any success at all is that because you were too singularly focused on the mission that you didn't take into the appreciation of the wider team's perspectives or was that i think both at that stage in my career, I failed to take the wider team perspective. I think I failed to think about the mental welfare and robustness of members of the team. I failed to attend to the ability to not just achieve that objective, but then to be able to, to move on to the next objective. And I think it was a combination of some laudable factors of drive and commitment and the things that kind of valued at Sandhurst in those days. But there was a massive element of naivety on my part. Mm. And I think that I needed to kind of grow as a person as much as I needed to grow as a leader. Mm. And by making those mistakes, it enabled me to, to do some self-reflection. I was also unbelievably lucky. I had a parachute regiment warrant officer who later in my career, he had commissioned and became my operations officer when I was a unit commander and he was unbelievably helpful in helping me develop and he took a role in my development not being hypercritical I think he could see the mistakes I was making and he tried to help me sometimes as I was making them and I may not have availed myself of of his wisdom but he persisted he helped me develop um we're still in touch now he's retired remarkable individual and if it weren't for him then I think I would have continued to fail and I'd have probably 
ended my career much earlier and I'd have gone off and done something else. Without his help, I wouldn't have become the person that I think I am now. And I believe that I'm a better person now than I was then. And a large part of that is because of his intervention. Yeah. He was the uh, catalyst to unlock that thing that we're, we, we rarely are taught at Sandhurst, but we learn about, which is the difference between leadership and followership. And that just because we're in, one might be in command, doesn't necessarily mean that you're the right person to lead, perhaps. Do you think we teach that enough? Do you think we, we try and develop leadership and followership and vice versa? So I think we, we talk a lot about leadership and mm-hmm. certainly kind of my experience of my military career when I've had any form of leadership training, there's been very much a, a, a focus on on leading. But I, I, I'm absolutely with the kind of precept of your question that there's a requirement on us to be a good follower. And in my daily life now as a four-star, I don't feel that I'm in a command position. I'm in an enabling position and I do as much of my time following and helping. And I think I'll probably do more of my time doing that than I do providing kind of leadership and and direction. And I'm really proud that my daily experience, I end up learning every day. I'm I'm fortunate in that I've got this amazingly diverse command in terms of its range of functions and therefore I can't be an expert in all of those things. In many ways, that's a great thing because what it does, it enables you to be inquisitive. It enables you to engage in a different way. And the first question I ask is, how can I help you? And my job is to help them be all that they can be. We talk a lot about empowerment. And sometimes I'm kind of slightly worried about empowerment because it somehow by granting empowerment, it, it, it almost suggests a, a power relationship that I empower you to do something. I, I don't see empowerment in that in that way. My function is to enable them to do that, and then be held accountable if anything doesn't go right. Uh, and I'm entirely comfortable with that. I'd rather people push boundaries and feel that they can, and that if they push the boundaries and something goes wrong, yeah, they're not going to be criticised. There's a a thing that Amazon use where they talk about one-way and two-way doors. And the idea being that if it's a two-way door that opens in both directions, like a, like a normal door, in, you should just step through. You don't need to ask anyone's permission. Mm. If you've got to make a decision and it's a two-way door, take the decision and go through it. If it turns out to be the wrong decision, you can come back through that door. You could just step backwards. Mm. Or maybe you could step forwards and go through another door. But what you shouldn't do is feel that you've always got to ask permission to do things. Mm. If it's a one-way door, like a fire door, that's going to lock shut behind you, you might want to ask someone before committing yourself, because if, if you have to break the door down to go backwards, it's, you know, that there's some cost and some noise and, and everything else. But So if it's a one-way door, maybe you kind of think twice, yeah. but don't not go through it just because it's a one-way door. Yeah. But to me, it's about, again, this is not empirically based. I would say that somewhere between... 95 and 99% of all decisions that we take are two-way doors mm. and that you could make that decision and you can try it. Mm. And the only time I get disappointed with anyone that works for me is when they're not trying things. But you've got to create the culture and the atmosphere where people feel that they've got the freedom to do that, that there isn't going to be you know, some form of, of kind of inappropriate investigation or people being held to account for just trying something new. If we're going to talk about sort of being innovative, 
then do you know what? We need to create the, the atmosphere, enable the approaches, and free people up to try things. Yeah. Because that goes back to my point about our people are brilliant. Um, how much how much more brilliant could could the organization be if we really free them to to deliver all that they can be? It's really encouraging to hear and you know, it chimes with so many other conversations we've been lucky enough to have on the podcast and learning from our mistakes as you as you so honestly and humbly said, you know, but also allowing people to push to the point of failure so they understand where their limits and boundaries are so that they can then develop and evolve as an individual but also as a team. So I'm I'm acutely aware um, that we've 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 taken up quite a lot of your time already, sir. But I'm not going to let you off the hook yet. So we always ask a series of quick fire questions, which you can be as specific or not as you wish. But um, who was the best leader you've ever worked with, and why? Uh, so there have been quite a lot. Um, I worked at one point for Rupert Smith when he was the GOC in Northern Ireland. And I found him charismatic in his approach, but I found him really clear about what he wanted people to achieve. And he then, having given that clarity, gave you the opportunity to deliver. And I found him, yeah, really a, a quite an inspiring leader to, to work for. Okay. And what about inspirational leaders from history that you would refer to or use as a reference point? So it's, it's kind of tempting to go back and look at kind of military leaders, but I often try to look sort of outside of the military sphere. Uh, in politics, I'm a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt, who I thought was a remarkable individual. The figures in history that I admire most are those that have sort of broken the mold, broken convention. And you could look back at you know, Florence Nightingale and their impact on medical services. You could look at the kind of suffragette movement. But I think the most some of the most inspiring leadership is where People are fighting from a position of disadvantage, often where it's been kind of inappropriately cast by society, mm. and they fight for freedom and they change things fundamentally. Because I think it's if you're in a mature organization that's got that gives you every opportunity, it's not easy, but it's relatively easy to be a good, effective leader. It's another thing if you're fighting from a really constrained position and then you achieve great things. I think that's really inspiring. Yeah. So with, with that in mind, what's the most valuable lesson that, that you've learned in, in terms of leadership? I think there's something about being willing to be yourself and to be willing to show your own vulnerability. And I think often leaders think, that they need to kind of put their armor on and they need to show that, that they know exactly what's going on and they're very clear and they're very decisive and, and they've got grip of the situation. And I think one of the things about true leadership is being willing to show some uncertainty and show some vulnerability. Mm. And if you can do that, I think you get an enormous amount of respect from your people because they can see that you may be in a leadership position but you're also a, a fragile and a human that's that's got the same frailties as everybody else. Mm. And just because you're in a leadership position doesn't make you a super person. No, well, no, I think many of us who've had the privilege of being in leadership positions would absolutely echo that. Um, final question, sir. With, with hindsight, and hindsight is always a wonderful thing, uh, what would you tell a, a young Jim as he went? up those steps to Sandus on day one with his ironing board under his arm? Uh, I think I would say 
be be confident about who you are, but boy, be willing to learn and change and recognize that there's strength that comes from listening, learning, adapting, being really agile. And you should want to know what people think of you, um, but you should do that in order to enable you to develop. And I think there's something about recognizing to a young person to say, don't worry about getting it wrong. Don't worry about making mistakes. If you're operating with the right intentions and you're willing to learn, then there's every chance you'll become a better person. And if you become a better person, you've got a chance of becoming a better leader. Wonderful. So thank you so much for giving me a little time. It's been, it's been really, really wonderful to have time to chat to you. No, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks. As ever, fascinating and informative in equal measure to hear from one of Defence's senior leaders. Throughout the episode, General Jim spoke about the importance of maintaining a calm approach to leadership, which, much like our professionalism and intellect, grows and matures over time throughout one's career. He spoke to the idea of continual reflection and about how one's leadership style must adapt and change over time. This should be contextually based as the mode of leadership required early on in one's career is unlikely to be suitable as one's span of responsibility and leadership increases over time. Expanding on this point, General Jim reflected that different teams require different forms of leadership and that you are not only shaped by your character and personality as a leader, but also by the environment in which you find yourself. Working within teams and with people is central to successful leadership. Identifying areas of common ground that will inspire a sense of collective purpose is often about collaboration to ensure shared outcomes. His analogy of creating effective teamwork, being about ganging up on the problem and not each other, is a lesson well learned no matter what organisation one works in. Finally, General Jim offered that leadership is about acting with a sense of basic humanity and that only through inclusivity and maximising individual talent can we hope to unleash the full potential of our people and create an organisation where almost anything is possible. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.